At the recent NATO summit in Vilnius, the photo calls were dominated inevitably by the heads of state and or government. There was also, however, a hefty roll-up of foreign and defence ministers, as is only natural at a gathering dominated by questions of foreign and defence policy. These particular cabinet members had much more to discuss than usual. There was the enlargement of the alliance. Finland attended as a full member of NATO for the first time. Sweden's accession was belatedly agreed by Turkey and Hungary and there was considerable anxious hedging about when and in what circumstances an invitation might be extended to Ukraine. In between their fretful huddles in the summit venues conference rooms, a few of these ministers made their way to Monocle's studio in the press centre and attempted to make themselves heard over the incredibly noisy French broadcaster next door. The foreign ministers of Iceland and the Czech Republic, the defence minister of Estonia, and amid the rather more upscale surroundings of the Finnish ambassador's residence in Vilnius, we spoke to Finland's new foreign minister. How wide are the disagreements about the conditions of Ukraine's admission to NATO? Are all the members of the alliance yet taking defence spending seriously enough? And has NATO stopped caring what Russia might regard as unacceptable? This is the Foreign Desk. It is extremely remarkable what we've done. The unity, the continued support, the clear message and the support from the public. But I also believe that Ukraine understands that as well. And they're asking for an understanding on their behalf. I think it's extremely difficult to truly understand what they're going through. Freedom has no price. And when we are not able to defend ourselves, then the biggest penalty you can have is that you will lose your independence. Everyone has to understand that when we are not doing 2%, then we are not also fulfilling the uh, Article 3 in NATO Treaty, which says that first and foremost you have to do it yourself. And then we rely on collective defense and one for all, all for one. This is not about favors, this is about geopolitics. To be part of the free world means that you can also decide in which club you want to belong. And if Ukraine wants to be part of the EU and NATO, we should have the responsibility and understanding from that. We have opened our policy, they can join both organizations and it will also bring peace to Europe. You're listening to The Foreign Desk, I'm Andrew Muller. The role of Foreign Minister demands a distinct set of skills. Back in April, I spoke to Alexander Stubb, who served as Finland's Prime Minister from 2014 to 2015, prior to which he also served as Finland's Foreign Minister. Here's what he told me when I asked whether being foreign minister was more fun. For me, it probably was because I've always seen myself as an international relations buff. I mean, I got my PhD in international relations and all of the work that I'd done happened within the context first of the European Union institutions, the European Parliament as well. And then as foreign minister, I felt very much at ease. I quite often say that international relations is kind of easy. It's about war and peace. National politics gets a little bit nastier. (laughs) The thing I will certainly stay away from is local politics because that's really brutal stuff. (laughs) That was the former Prime Minister and Foreign Minister of Finland, Alexander Stubb. Finnish foreign ministers from here on will, of course, have an extra deck on their in-tray. 
In the lead-up to the NATO summit in Vilnius, we visited the Finnish ambassador's residence, where I sat down with Elena Valtonen, Finland's Minister of Foreign Affairs since June. I began by asking how she felt about Finland joining a NATO summit as a full member for the first time. Well, it's indeed a historical day and a very big day for us. Well, two years ago, probably not, though I must say that I personally myself, I have been in favour of Finland joining NATO for forever. So this, of course, underlines my personal experience here. There will also be a lot of talk at this summit, obviously, about the future membership of Ukraine. I think there's general agreement that Ukraine should one day be a member of NATO, but there seem to be differing views on how quickly that should happen and in what circumstances. What's your view on this? Are you of the view that this can't happen while there are still any Russian troops in Ukraine? Or do you think there is a way around that? I'm very committed to having Ukraine in NATO in the future. It's very difficult to draw an exact timeline on when this should happen or when this could happen. Finland is very committed in assisting Ukraine on all possible levels, but also in fulfilling those criteria which have to be met in order to become a member in NATO. So, of course, the concrete steps will be also in this summit to further stabilise and commit for the future our aid packages and assisting Ukraine on all levels, also as NATO, but also discuss in which way we can make the cooperation between Ukraine and NATO even closer. And therefore, the new council, NATO, Ukraine Mm. council, which just goes to show that uh, NATO is very strongly committed to having, well, a very tight cooperation with Ukraine, also aiding in these daily needs when they are fighting the aggressor in their country. And it also has to be said that probably in this instance, whenever the war is over, which means that Russia withdraws and stops the horrendous war, probably what is or what lies between peace and war is not that. It's probably not the black and white issue. Mm. And also because of this, I think it would be not wise to bind Ukraine's future NATO membership to something called peace. One of the interesting aspects of Finland becoming a member of NATO is that well, one of the reasons that Finland was not a member of NATO for so long is that Finland had gone a very different way in maintaining a relationship with Russia to a lot of Europe, um, a lot of Eastern Europe, a lot of Scandinavia. Do you think there's still anything left of that? Do you imagine, for example, having any direct contact with Russia in your role as foreign minister while this war continues? Well, first of all, it has to be said that, of course, Finland... In that sense, it's a different story that, yes, we do have a long border with Russia, but we never were in the Soviet sphere, so we were able to remain independent. It took, of course, a very hard price, which Finland has never forgotten, and none of the Finnish families have forgotten that. And we have been a stable democracy, an independent country for over 100 years, obviously valuing human rights and Western values. And we have used every window of opportunity there has been in the past to edge towards the West. Of course, it has been, especially during the Cold War, it was a difficult position that Finland had back then, but we believed in our credible defence, our own military based on conscription, and indeed we do have one of the strongest armies in, in Europe. And for a very long time, Finns thought that since we know where we are, we are in the West, we are members in the European Union, 
we don't need NATO membership in the sense. But now, of course, after Russia started this war, then people's minds changed. So Finland wasn't really ideologically committed to any neutrality, a little bit like Sweden mm. perhaps has been able to do, because they don't have an aggressive eastern neighbor. I tend to think that we are very close friends. <laughs> so we do have the lowest possible contact on an operational level. But what comes to a political or diplomatic efforts, um, it's very much derived from our memberships in European Union and NATO. So we don't have a, like a bilateral Russia relationship. And for anything to be restored probably takes a very, very, very long time. And of course, before anything like that can be even talked about, they must end the war and withdraw from Ukraine. I did want to ask just finally, obviously, you're, you're recently arrived in this position. Last time we spoke to Finland's foreign minister on this program, it, it was your predecessor. You're part of a new government. I'm just wondering if your party involved in this government has any worries about the perception of Finland that might be created by your coalition partners. Obviously, over the last few years, Finland has had a quite high international profile, a lot of very positive international media attention. But you know, as you know, the finance minister has already had to resign, Mr. Junilla, from the True Finns due to some unamusing jokes he made about the Nazis. And you have a minister of the interior who has a history of remarks about the so-called great replacement conspiracy theory. Are you concerned about the image that that will project of Finland abroad, that these people are in government? Well, the government is based on a coalition and mm. um, we do have a tradition of coalitions in Finland. And typically we, well, not just typically, but also in this case, we operate based on a government program on the issues that we want to achieve during the term. And it never implies that all parties agree on everything or do have the same values. But having said that, of course, it's not acceptable uh, to have any acting ministers believing in conspiracy theories or being open racists. That's not acceptable. We will just have to see on a, on a daily basis. But then again, we also need to be pragmatic and accept that it was a democratically held election and 20% of the Finns voted for the Finns party. That was Finland's Minister of Foreign Affairs, Elena Valtonen. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. This is The Foreign Desk on Monocle Radio. Iceland was one of the 12 nations which founded NATO in 1949. From that day to this, Iceland has occupied a curious position in this mighty military alliance. It does not have a military. Its only serious firepower, indeed, is the single antique cannon affixed to the prow of one of its Coast Guard ships. Thordis Kolbrun Rekford Gilfadotir is Iceland's Minister of Foreign Affairs, and I spoke to her at the NATO summit in Vilnius. I began by asking why Iceland had decided to suspend its embassy operations in Moscow. Well, it's been, of course, an ongoing both discussion and you know thoughts and work uh, within the ministry and also domestically. I mean, we have a, an embassy, Russian embassy in, in Reykjavik, with over 20 people. And we have two diplomats in Moscow and a couple of staff. Mm. So when we see other nations making decisions on sending people back, we always saw that if we would do that in the same way, our embassy would basically be closed <laughs> because we're so few. 
But again, we, we also looked at, does it make sense to have operations in a country where you have almost none political engagement, you have almost no business, very minimum cultural ties and cooperation, or should we just suspend the operations for the time being while these are the circumstances? And if and when they change, we will be up and running again. So we made that decision after quite some time and a lot of thought and quite some work. And this is what made sense for us. I mean, I know Iceland is a special case in a lot of respects, but do you think this is something that more NATO countries, more Western countries should think about doing to reinforce the idea that Russia has stepped some margin beyond the bounds of acceptable behaviour? Well, I mean, of course, this is a decision we made and every country has to evaluate their interest. But again, I mean, we have made a decision to isolate Russia as, as much as possible. We have put sanctions. We have almost no interest business relations. We will just have to see what happens. I mean, we've had an embassy there since 1944. We got our independence in 1944. So the history is long. But of course, this has to be a decision for each and every country. So we will, we will see. Continuing with the theme of Iceland being a special case, is it strange coming to a summit of a defensive military alliance as a representative of the only member which does not in fact have a standing military? Well, I don't have an experience of the alternative. (laughs) So this is the reality. Of course, it is a unique position, but we are a founding member of NATO and we are a very proud member of NATO and we understand our strategic location is what it is. And we take our role seriously and we understand that we are not only a member of NATO because of our own security, our own deterrence and effect on the Icelandic citizens. It's also a responsible thing to do when you're located where Iceland is located. So we try to do whatever we can to be a reliable partner, reliable ally. And we've tried also to be quite creative when it comes to, for example, the support for Ukraine, because we can't send weapons, but we can, you know, put money in funds which then buys weapons. We can assist with flights with armaments like we did just in the early days, two days after the invasion. So we have our unique position, but we try to do whatever we can. And we are a very proud member of NATO. Denmark and Norway were also founding members in 1949. Between then and the last year and a bit, was there any kind of schism among the Nordic countries between non-NATO members and NATO members? Because obviously Sweden and Finland, for different reasons, decided to sit it out until quite recently. I mean, I think overall and in general, there is this, of course, huge respect for, you know, decision making in each and every country. This has been the case since NATO was founded. I mean, today we have three countries in the EU, two there are not. Iceland and Norway, of course, we have the EA agreement and we work very closely with the EU. So I think that hasn't really been the case But of course, we recognize how much this changed now with Finland already a member, Sweden very, very, very soon. You know, it will change both our cooperation and also just the security of the region. But, you know, the short answer is that there is a a total respect 
of each and every decision making in independent countries. With Sweden's membership now more or less in the bag, the dominant theme of the rest of the summit is obviously going to be Ukraine's membership and the prospects for Ukraine's membership and the circumstances in which that should happen. Does Iceland have a firm view on this? I believe Ukraine deserves clear answers. Ukraine's future is in NATO and NATO's future is with Ukraine in it. We would not only be doing Ukraine a favor. You know, this is a win-win situation we would be at. It would have a huge effect on the security of the continent, the region and the alliance. We do put a lot of pressure on Ukraine. They're thankful, they can't be too angry, they do these reforms, you know, they're doing the fight. And, you know, I think we also have to try to truly understand what they're going through. And I think we just can't. So I believe that, like I said, they deserve clear answers and a clear path to become a member of NATO. That's important. And I look at this summit, you know, a milestone on that path. Just finally, then, on that point, is it, do you think, widely understood among the current members of NATO that Ukraine is fighting this war on NATO's behalf? Because that has certainly been Ukraine's line. Do you think that, regardless of the language that's in the communique, people have at least taken that much on board? I think, yes, we understand and we believe and we see that they are literally fighting our fight. But what gets complicated is, I mean, politics are complicated, human beings are complicated, societies are complicated, democratic societies are extremely complicated. Democracy is chaotic and messy because all all the things are lying on the table. You can't hide them like the autocrats do until it's broken, then it's broken. But all these materials combined make it quite a challenge for countries to do what it takes and to do what we've done. I mean, it is extremely remarkable what we've done. The unity, the continued support, the clear message and the support from the public, which of course we need and we will continue to need. So of course it is a balance and we need to understand that balance and we need to understand different circumstances in different countries for the greater good. But I also believe that Ukraine understands that as well. And they're asking for an understanding on their behalf. Like I said, I think it's extremely difficult to truly understand what they're going through. I mean, they are losing lives every day, every hour. And to have the pressure to do all things kind of right. And on top of that, going through all these reforms that they're doing. And they're not doing that because we are asking them to. They're doing it because they already made a decision where they're heading. So they're not only defending, you know, legally, internationally recognized borders, defending their sovereignty and independence. They are also, you know, reforming and transforming into a society that they have already made a decision that they will become. And I think that's something that we should also, you know, truly see and recognize. That was Iceland's Foreign Minister, Thordis Colbrun Rickford Gilfordotir. You're listening to The Foreign Desk on Monocle Radio. This is The Foreign Desk. I'm Andrew Muller. Since Russia attacked Ukraine last February, there has been an unmistakable and understandable refrain from the Baltic states regarding Russia to the effect of, we told you so. While there are indications that this hard-won wisdom is being heeded, the Baltic states are still well ahead of most of their allies in terms of defence spending as a percentage of GDP. 
At the NATO summit, we spoke to Hanno Pevka, Estonia's Minister of Defence, and began by asking whether NATO had really stopped caring what Russia thinks. Well, I believe that there is a common sense and understanding that we have to keep in mind uh, different developments and definitely different scenarios are discussed and we cannot avoid it. And then we have to bear in mind that uh, also Russia has the right to act and definitely all our analysis and and, and all our wisdom has to be used in that sense to make right decisions. So... I believe also that NATO as an alliance will be stronger only then when we all understand and acknowledge that we have to invest more to defense. And these times last maybe three decades when somebody thought that it is okay to not invest enough to defense and we can be maybe calm and considering Russia as a democratic country that these times are over and we all understand that yes there is a need to invest more and there is a need to do more. For obvious enough reasons the Baltic states and the more easterly members of NATO have been quite strident about this the need to spend more and do more. Estonia is I think now over one percent of GDP just in aid to Ukraine and the Baltic states are the highest per capita donors to Ukraine. But do you think everybody else in the alliance has entirely got the message yet? Well, there are different messages for sure. Uh, First uh, is uh, helping Ukraine militarily. And there is a clear understanding that, yes, there is a need to do more. And definitely US has shown here clear leadership, bringing us more than 50 countries thinking together, doing together things in order to help Ukraine to win this war. The other thing is that what we are doing domestically, what we are doing inside of Alliance, can we do more? And then I truly hope that we will end today and tomorrow so that there is a clear understanding for a need to do more than 2%, that 2% is absolute minimum. And we are definitely advocating for doing more. And when we have ourselves a bit more in our reserves, in our defense, then we can also give a bit more to Ukraine in order to win this war. How easy is it to make that case as a small country? Because you must have heard the response, well, that's easy for you to say. 2% of Estonia's GDP is a lot less than 2% of Germany's or Spain's or France's. Pardon me, but 2% is still 2%. <laughs> so when, when I take uh, 100 billion and take 2% of that, so there's still 2%. And uh, definitely when we talk about big countries, their economies are also much bigger. That doesn't change the percentages. So this is why we have percentages. And the same comes to us that when we do 2%, then or actually Estonia is doing 3% for the next 10 years, addition to that host nation support. That means that when we are doing 3%, then we cannot put to culture or education maybe the same amount because we are putting this extra 1% above 2% to defense. So that is not a valid point for me because this is why we have the percentages. Do you think NATO needs some sort of enforcement mechanism for that? Should there be some sort of penalty attached to failing to reach the 2% threshold? The biggest penalty for all the NATO countries is that when we are not ready to defend ourselves, and we know that freedom has no price, and when we are not able to defend ourselves, then the biggest penalty what you can have is that you will lose your independence. 
So this is why I believe that we don't need any like, you know, specific penalties or punishments for those who are not fulfilling 2%. But everyone has to understand that, you know, that when we are not doing 2%, then we are not also fulfilling the uh, Article 3 in NATO Treaty, which says that first and foremost, you have to do yourself. And then we rely on collective defense and, uh, you know, one for all, all for one. It is understandable enough, obviously, why the Baltic states in particular and those countries which share borders with Russia or are closer to Russia feel this more keenly, given the history. And I understand that we're probably not at the point of having this conversation yet. But do you think, I guess, even if you're trying to be optimistic, five, ten years down the line, what kind of relationship... Estonia and the Baltic countries might have with a different Russia one day because obviously the one or one of the fundamentals of this whole thing is that Russia will always be your neighbor. Well yeah we cannot change the geography although there was a song in Estonia once that you know Estonian border goes to Chinese border but, <laughs> but you know being realistic that we have to deal with Russia and I believe all the West has to deal with Russia Although I have to say that I don't see any developments in Russia to see that they will be a democratic country once. So they've never been, and I don't see the path for Russia to democracy. So this is unfortunately the realistic view of that, and this is why we have to be ready to defend ourselves and to defend ourselves collectively. And just finally, because I I was curious as to what it must have looked like from where you were sitting, how strange was it in your position in Tallinn watching the Yevgeny Prigozhin insurrection unfold the other week? Well, we started to monitor that very closely. Although it was an internal matter of Russia and, let's say, internal riot in Russian army because finally Putin also confirmed that Prigozhin was and still is financed by the Russian government. Although you know, just a year ago he claimed, or a bit more, that he has nothing to do with Prigozhin and he has nothing to do with Wagner. Uh, knowing that and looking at the developments there, we will probably get some more information in coming weeks and months. But as it seems that it might have been also just a FSB operation to understand who is on which side. That was Estonia's Defence Minister Hanno Pevka speaking to us at the NATO summit in Vilnius. Our final guest today is Jan Lepavsky, the Czech Republic's Foreign Minister. I began by asking if he understood why President Volodymyr Zelensky of Ukraine was frustrated with NATO ahead of his arrival at the summit and if more should be offered to Ukraine than an undated promise of an invitation to join. I think the final communique is quite clear and even what President Zelensky said on the press conference that he's welcoming the stance of NATO and I've just left from the meeting where the meeting of NATO-Ukraine Council is taking place right now and there's a very good mood and you know we have to understand that Ukraine has one of the most advanced and skilled armies in the world right now because they are waging a real war against Russia and let's see that once the war ends Ukraine will be welcome in NATO. 
So you think there's a, a gathering understanding that it wouldn't just be so much NATO doing Ukraine a favour, that NATO would itself gain by welcoming this large and experienced military into the alliance? And this is not about favours, this is about geopolitics. This is about Ukrainians fighting in trenches for freedom and democracy in their country. This is about Ukrainians fighting to be part of the free world. And to be part of the free world means that you can also decide in which club you want to belong. And if Ukraine wants to be part of the EU and NATO, we should have the responsibility and understanding from that. We have opened our policy. And once the war will be over, once Ukraine will restore its territorial integrity and sovereignty, they can join both organizations and it will also bring peace to Europe. It's been noticeable to us as a program over the last year and a half or so that the further east in Europe a country is, it tends to be the more viscerally, the more profoundly it feels what Russia has done in Ukraine. With the Czech Republic or Czechoslovakia as then was, has this, I guess, reawakened memories of 1968? Is that why the Czech Republic has been so invested in this? Firstly, our security interests, because we need a secure Europe to have a secure Czechia. Those are connected things. There is no secure Czechia without secure Europe. And look what Putin and his cronies and the Russian propagandists are saying. It's an imperialistic policy. They want to colonize different countries. It was not only about Ukraine. It was about breaching the charter of UN, the principle of borders, of non-aggression, of not waging a war of aggression. So it is also a matter of principle and complete European security. Now it is materializing in Ukraine. So we have to fully support Ukraine, so it's able to protect its borders. Do you think that Europe, by which I mean NATO and or the EU, has to think of Russia as basically a permanent problem, something that we're never going to be able to reach an accommodation with, something that we must always seek, first of all, to defend ourselves against? Russia imperialism is the cause of this trouble, not Putin itself. There were many other Russian leaders who had imperialistic visions before Putin. So we don't know what will be the fate of Putin and how long he will be ruling Russia, but we can be for sure to state that Russia will pose a threat to European security until it's removed its imperialistic ambitions. And that would need a profound change in Russia, which is not possible, and I don't see it in foreseeable future. You don't think there's anything that can be done to bring that change about? Because you're quite right, it is an imperial attitude, but at various points in history in some cases in very recent history, most European countries have had kind of an imperial attitude to some extent or another. And then those European countries crafted the EU and joined the United Nations and founded NATO and changed the, the very principles how they, how they operate in the international sphere. But I don't see any real scenario how Russia would change its stance. And during the 90s, we have had this vision of having a good relationship with Russia. Germany had, uh, had this policy of, of trading with, uh, with Russia and changing Russia to trade, which completely failed. We know that now. Even there was the NATO-Russia Council trying to bring Russia closer to NATO and to have a profound discussion. Russia is even blocking everything in OECE, OECE which is built upon Helsinki Accords, from 70, so it was Soviet leadership which was ready to say that the borders won't be changed by force. So I don't know what change will need to happen in 
in Russia so that the Russia will be able to really stick to those principles. We will, we will need to wait for that change in Russia. And until that happens, we need to secure eastern flank of NATO. And we should be helping Ukraine to protect its sovereignty and territorial integrity and being ready to offer them NATO membership. Do you get the impression, though, that there is still degrees of hawkishness among the NATO members, or is everybody more or less on the same page now? I know President Zelensky visited Prague recently and, and spoke to President Pavel. I'm, I'm just wondering if maybe a government takes a different view when it is, in fact, led by a former general. It's not so easy, but we have our long-term policy of support to Ukraine, President Pavel fully supports Ukraine. And of course, you have different degrees of hawkishness, if I would be using your words. It's an organization of 31 countries, so there are different opinions. On the other side, the important is what the communique says and uh, the agreement and the unity demonstrated by the summit. That was Jan Lepavsky, the Czech Republic's Minister of Foreign Affairs. That's it for this episode of The Foreign Desk. We'll be back next week and look out for The Foreign Desk Explainer, available every Wednesday. The Foreign Desk was produced by Emma Searle and Christy O'Grady. Christy also produces The Foreign Desk Explainer. To contact The Foreign Desk team, you can email emma at es at monocle.com and don't forget to subscribe to Monocle magazine and our free daily email bulletins by heading to our website at monocle.com. From me, Andrew Muller, thank you very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.